0: Good afternoon, everyone. I think it's 12 o'clock. My watch says it's 12 o'clock. Good afternoon. My name is Christopher Preble, and I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Um, Thank you all for being here today, and welcome also to those of you who are watching online at cato.org. I'd also like to uh, extend special thanks to Cato's Conference Department, uh, who does do such a terrific job with these events, and also a special... Uh, mentioned to my uh, assistant, James Knopp, a Cato Research Associate, who helped with the log- logistics today. Um, today is September 11th. Uh, obviously, on this day 18 years ago, um, al-Qaeda terrorists killed nearly 3,000 innocent men, women, and children in four coordinated attacks, the deadliest incident in history, and the bloodiest day on American soil in well over a century. Uh, since that time, the Pentagon... Uh, reports that about 7,000 Americans have been killed in the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and the greater Middle East, as well as the other military operations associated with the war on terror. Many Americans uh, still recall uh, the trauma of 9-11 and are aware of the scale of the death and destruction. Some have a sense too of the numbers of U.S. troops killed. Now, I should add, before I get too far along, of course, Iraq was not actually about uh, 9-11 and Al-Qaeda, a fact about that war that the advocates uh, worked assiduously to obscure, but I digress. Um, Today, there will be and there should be uh, remembrances of those Americans lost, but I'm hopeful that after today's discussion we'll also pay our respects to the innocent men, women, and children who have, through no fault of their own, been caught up in America's wars. Let me tell you a little bit about how this event came about. One of Cato's many friends and generous supporters approached me several months ago asking if we had studied civilian casualties. Another friend objected to the term civilians. He said I sounded too much like a military man, which, of course, I was. Uh, He reminded me these were men, women, and children. uh, And so we should use that phrase as often as possible. And I thought about it, and I was aware of some news articles, um, some quite in-depth. There's a a quite well-known one, The Uncounted by Asmat Khan and Anand Gopal in the New York Times Magazine uh, in November 2017, which studied uh, a a series of incidents uh, that resulted in a large number of civilian casualties. There was a quite good article by Jeffrey Stern in the New York Times Magazine that basically studied a single incident tracking a bomb as it went from Arizona to ultimately being dropped in Yemen by a Saudi F-15. But aside from having read these stories, uh, I explained that we had not really dug into this question here at Cato, but other organizations had. And uh, you know much of this work requires a very meticulous, uh, painstaking, and often dangerous uh, work to, to understand the scale of the problem. And then I remembered that there was a program on the, ta- uh, the radio program, This American Life, which um, dedicated an entire episode in October 2005 was digging into this question digging into the work of how do we understand civilian casualties in wartime. Um, It focused on a a large-scale mortality study that was published in the British medical journal The Lancet. I remember listening to this uh, episode over and over again during some of the darkest days of the Iraq War, and it really stuck with me. And yet I never hosted an event on this topic. Uh, So here we are. Um, and, And the question is a seemingly simple one. How many innocent men, women, and children have died in America's post 9-11 wars? Question one. The people with me today are uniquely qualified to help answer this question. Um, I'm just gonna introduce them very briefly, uh, but really give them an opportunity to talk more about themselves and their organizations. Uh, uh, Here on my far uh, right is Daphne Aviatar. She's Director of Security with Human Rights at Amnesty International USA. Uh, next to me is Dan Mahanty. He's the director of the U.S. program, the Center for Civilians in Conflict. And to my left is Emily Manna, who's a policy analyst at Open the Government. I want to give each of them a chance to, to sort of answer this question, and to, but I need to put some parameters around it. When The Lancet published their study in late 2004, so, so about a year and a half after the start of the Iraq War, they uh, estimated that 100,000 war-related deaths had occurred already in Iraq, and that that figure was, was vastly uh, different from the other figures that had been compiled up to that time. That was 14 years ago. In 2015, the Columbia Journalism Review concluded that anywhere from 135,000 to 1 million Iraqi civilians, Iraqi civilians had died since 2003, and then... Uh, most recently, the cost of war project in November two thousand and eighteen counted at least two hundred and forty four thousand civilian deaths in just three countries: Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan and If you can see, these numbers are all over the map they 're just they 're just crazy and so starting with you, Daphne, can you tell me a little bit about how your organization uh, but tell me about your organization for those who don 't know, I think many people do of course, but tell us a little bit about your organization. Tell us how your organization goes about sort of um, counting or assessing how others count. And also maybe tell a little bit about how you've come into studying this this issue as well.
1: Okay, that's a lot.
2: Um,
1: <laughs> Pick this, one. Is this working? Okay, so um, I work for Amnesty International and really what Amnesty does, we don't do the kind of big picture assessments of how many people overall have died in a particular conflict, although we, we follow what all of these different assessments are. But what, are, what we do, what we really specialize in, is going in after a conflict and looking at what's the impact on the ground in particular places. So we can't do it everywhere. You know, we, we have offices all over the world, but we, don't, we have a relatively small research staff. But they're extremely professional and extremely rigorous in the way that they do these assessments. So, for example, Um, after a four-month assault of the U.S.-led coalition on Raqqa in Syria, and this was to get rid of the Islamic State, which was holding Raqqa at the time, we went in, we had researchers go in and start interviewing people and going to the sites of the strikes and looking at satellite photos and doing an enormous amount of research, and ultimately we spent about two years researching this and also partnered with the group Air Wars, which does do that kind of macro analysis of how many people overall have been killed, we we were able to document about 1,600 civilian casualties just from that one assault in a four-month period in 2017. And what we do, and I guess one of the things that I think is really important and that generally is missing from the discussion of civilian casualties and the way that the U.S. government assesses civilian casualties is... We go in and interview people. We look and see who was killed. Because a lot of the wars these days are from the air. I mean, there's also, there was also a ton of artillery used in Syria, more than, than the Marines had used since Vietnam was one of the, one of the things that they said. So it was an, a huge assault. It was what they called a war of annihilation. That was what General Mattis termed it. Um, And they were able to get IS out of Raqqa at that time, although certainly not destroying the organization. But the consequences for civilians were enormous. And so we documented that in all different ways. We have an online uh, site that shows lots of first-hand video from the scene, interviews with people who were victims, who lost family members. We were able to identify the names of, I think, 647 individuals killed, all civilians. so it's a, it's a massive effort. We can't do it everywhere. We've done a, a comparable project in Somalia, but on a much smaller scale due to it, there's a, it's a smaller war there, and there, it was more difficult to go in there for security reasons. But that's how Amnesty International operates. So we don't make estimates. We verify. We go in, we find evidence, and we verify, and we present it to the U.S. military. And then they sometimes respond, and they sometimes don't. I think a really important point is that the US military doesn't do that, right? They they don't go in and do interviews and go back to strike sites and ask people who lived here, who was killed. They generally look at aerial footage and they rely on intelligence sources, none of which they'll reveal, and a potentially questionable reliability since we often don't have troops on the ground in these places or we have very few troops on the ground. And our partners in these places might not always be the most reliable or might have their own motives. So one of the things that we've been really trying to push the military to do is to actually go in after you've conducted a major assault and you've been bombing an area for a while or, and using massive artillery, go in afterwards and find out who was killed. Who were these people? And what we're getting instead are these estimates from the military that. Um, You know, a few hundred civilians maybe are killed. I I think they acknowledged 159 civilians killed in Raqqa. Well, we found 1,600. There's a big difference there. And one reason they're not finding it is because they're not really looking for it. And while they're congressionally mandated to report on this, they get to choose how they report on it. And the mission is to annihilate the Islamic State. It's not to protect civilians. It's not to help the city uh, recover from the assault. It's not to help Syria develop. It's nothing like that. It's to kill the enemy. It's the lethality. They're trying to increase their lethality to kill an enemy. It's completely understandable. That's the military's role. But I think what's neglected is how many civilians are suffering in the process. And then also, what are the larger consequences of that? When you've killed massive numbers of civilians, and in Raqqa, for example, destroyed 80% of the city, destroyed most of the infrastructure, destroyed people's livelihood and where they live and their families. I mean, what are you leaving behind and and what's likely to come of that? And is that really making us safer? So I'm going over my five minutes, but that's sort of how Amnesty looks at it. I mean, we really focus on documenting very specific cases. We have a ton of information on our website, reports, reports. Yeah, so, and I'll leave it at that. And in terms of how I came to doing this, I just, I'm from New York, um, so 9-11 was a huge event for me and for everyone I know, you know, many people I know saw the towers fall. Um, It was a devastating thing, but I think we never thought that 18 years later we would still be at war over that in countries that had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks and that we would've killed hundreds of thousands more people to address a problem that we still haven't really addressed. So I'll leave it at that.
3: Thank you, Daphne. Thanks, uh, and thanks to Cato and thanks, Chris, for, for hosting us. And i um, really grateful to have the opportunity and, and privileged also to be here with, uh, with Daphne uh, and with Emily, who work for organizations uh, for which I have a profound amount of respect. Uh, you know The work that your researchers do on the ground, Daphne, is so important to the work that we do in Washington, and Emily, keeping the doors of government open for conversations through promoting transparency uh, is critical to what we're doing as well. Um, I actually have a slightly different background and, and therefore a different story of how I came to work on these issues uh, in an advocacy uh, sort of role. I actually worked for the U.S. Department of State for the better part of 16 years, um, and through that you know, that experience, I really became a lot more, I guess, sensitized to the fact that while we tend to talk a lot about diplomacy and, and development as, as key uh, instruments of national power, the way people around the world tend to experience the United States and understand the United States um, is through our security policies. and when you talk to people abroad, um, they tend to relate their experience to things they experience um, as a result of those things. And so I came to understand it's actually, it's through restraint and through respect for human rights uh, that the United States I think gains uh, the best position uh, in the world. And it's so important to us as a country that we, get that, that we get that absolutely right. So when the opportunity came to work for an organization like the Center for Civilians in Conflict, um, I certainly couldn't turn that down. For those of you who are not uh, as familiar with our organization, uh, we've been around since really the beginning of uh, the Afghanistan war. Uh, we were started by a really remarkable uh, young woman named Marla Ruzica, who was actually born within two months of, of me uh, in, in the late 70s, we'll say late, late 70s, not really. <laughs> but um, And she took it upon herself after the invasion of Afghanistan to get on a plane and You know, she was in her late 20s, went to Afghanistan and basically just started documenting the experience of civilians, you know, who weren't really the the story of of the post 9-11 invasion of Afghanistan and and went and met people who had been affected by by combat operations from from both sides. And her belief was that if she took that information uh, and prevailed upon the people who were fighting the war to do something different uh, with that information, either to prevent civilian harm or to do something, you know, to acknowledge and to redress uh, harm that had taken place, um, then she, she could change the narrative of the of the war. And in a sense, um, she had a lot of faith in in the goodness of people. And so she actually went straight to the U.S. military. And there are a lot of stories about how she would knock on the door of a tank and get somebody to do something about somebody who had been hurt. Uh, and there are a lot of amazing stories. She was tragically killed doing this work uh, in Iraq um, a few years after that. And so. Um, so we miss her presence and I never got to meet her, but uh, it sort of lives on through the work that we're doing. We too don't do you know, sort of estimating, casualty counting, um, but what we do is we try to work with organizations that do the documentation and the estimating. Uh, you know, We work a lot with Air Wars, which is a fantastic organization and really doing a great job of documenting um, you know, what's actually happening in, in these conflicts to civilians. Um, and then we do the same thing that Marla did. We we t- try to take that information and identify, you know, why we're seeing what we're seeing, and then prevail upon those in the halls of power to do something different uh, than they are currently doing um, with that information. Um, you know, I just want to mention, I, you know, I'm I think you so uh, eloquently wrapped up, you know, you know the fact that today is a day of reflection for a lot of people on on the events of 9/11 and what happened. But I'm really grateful. Uh, to Cato and to all of you who came here today to really reflect on the fact that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have have died, um, you know, as a result of the wars that followed. And you mentioned the Iraq war, which was clearly not related to the events of 9-11, but we should also mention, of course, the conflicts that grew from other conflicts and the proliferation of weapons that took place as a result of those conflicts and the tremendous disruption to infrastructure and livelihoods that resulted. So really, you know, acknowledging the fact that you know millions of people have probably been affected by war since 9-11. And we as a country don't tend to not only remember that, but we don't acknowledge it or pay tribute to the loss that is taking place. You know, We don't stand up at baseball games and wave our hat to, to people who have been killed or lost family members. Right. You know, they don't get to board airplanes first. And while we should definitely pay our respects to the brave uh, American men and women who, who fight in wars, um, I think it's really important that we get it right as a country when it comes to reckoning with with the civilian harm that has taken place um, as a result. Now, I'll just I'll, I'll wrap up in the next minute or so um, just with some some additional thoughts on the why, um, and I know we'll have some time to talk more about that. But I do spend a lot of time, and we're kind of unique in in some cases as an NGO because I spend a lot of time talking to people in uniform, people at the Pentagon, uh, people at the State Department, and I don't think there's an intention to kill people. I don't think anybody goes out and says, I really hope I can kill a lot of civilians today. So a part of the conversation has to get beyond intention and has to focus on factors that really bear some serious investigation and scrutiny, both at kind of a political and cultural level when it comes to the uh, the United States' relationship with war, but then some of the other operational factors that that come into play. Um, Daphne alluded to a couple and I'll just propose some thoughts for consideration for the discussion. The first is, we as a country have developed a pretty strong allergy to placing our own troops in harm's way, Um, and that again is not a commentary on the bravery of of America's fighting forces. I think it's just a fact, and because of that, we tend to fight in certain ways that may reduce risk to our own fighting forces, a lot of air operations. uh, We fight through through coalition operations and with partners. Um, you know that has a knock on effect it makes it more difficult to understand the effects of our operations. It obscures attribution for uh, the harm that occurs as a result, uh, and it also conceals I think in many ways the responsibility that we bear when we when we fight through through partners if you look at situations like Saudi Arabia right. uh, and Yemen. Um, the second thing I just quickly mention is there is <laughs> we 're an incredibly innovative and technologically advanced country and there's a lot of confidence placed in the magic of technology and you know the, uh, the value of precision uh, in the way that wars are fought. We're not having the conversation we would be having right now about you know carpet bombing and the Vietnam War. We're talking about a different kind of, of war. But at the same time, confidence in those things can introduce uh, a certain degree of confirmation bias uh, into the system. Right. And I think there's a, we're really at risk right now of not being willing enough to second guess whether or not uh, what we think happened is actually what happened. And when organizations like Amnesty go in and find you know, a dramatic discrepancy in how we understand the effects of operations, um, that really changes the way we think about what to do about it, um, both for preventing casualties in the future, uh, but also how to acknowledge and, and address that harm. Um, I also think the military tends to misinterpret a public demand signal from those of us who engage on civilian casualties as Advocating for clean war, like war without casualties, <laughs> and sometimes the public affairs messages, you know, we we strive for zero civilian casualties. We, you know, we're we're fighting as clean a war as possible. I don't think that's really the point. The point is to have an honest reckoning with the harm of war, with the true cost of war, uh, and factor that into to conversations about uh, how we deal with with conflict. And then finally, um, you know, she, Daphne also mentioned the kind of intensity of conflict. I'm very concerned, and I think everybody should watch for this that there is a current that is running through the system right now that tends to draw correspondence between intensity and lethality and the duration of war. In other words, fight harder, fight faster, and you'll shorten war uh, in the long run. This is a concept that goes way back, uh, famously articulated by Francis Lieber uh, as sharp war, uh, and it unfortunately, I think, is based on a lot of flawed assumptions and and a really bad understanding of history, Um, so we should be watchful of that. And the last thing I'll say is just, I talk to the military a lot and we tend to place these problems squarely at the feet of people doing the fighting, but we should also recall that at the end of the day, um, the reasons we entered into conflict in the first place, whether you agree with them or not, um, really are are the result of policies and political decisions that are made by people at the White House and people in Congress. Um, And we've got to put responsibility where it lies and place a lot more scrutiny as a country and as the public uh, on policymakers to make the right decisions. So I'll conclude with that. Great, thanks, Dan.
4: Yeah, so uh, I'm from uh, Open the Government, which is a government transparency and accountability organization. So we've got a little bit of a different uh, perspective on this, and we're not doing as much of the um, really crucial kind of fact-finding and, and uh, investigative research uh, that Dan and, and Daphne are doing. Um, but uh, what we've been trying to do is to uh, take uh, a conversation about U.S. wars uh, to the American public in different communities around the country and have kind of just a town hall style conversation with folks uh, to, to hopefully um, bring what feels like a far away issue uh, closer to home. So we're more focused on that national discourse and public access to information around uh, civilian casualties and around U.S. wars in general. Um, and and uh, so where the national discourse is now, um, we've seen uh, through the, the Democratic uh, presidential primary process so far that there has been a lot more conversation on the issue of endless war, which is a great thing uh, and a great development. But what you won't hear as part of those conversations is, uh, is any discussion of civilian casualties as uh, one of the reasons why the U.S. should be drawing down our conflicts overseas. Uh, And that really stands in stark contrast, especially to how the candidates are talking about issues like immigration, where human suffering as a result of U.S. policy is really front and center of that conversation. Uh, In in the conversation about endless war, not so much. Um, And so what that says is that these candidates and, and their advisors Uh, don't see civilian casualties as a really strong argument when talking to the U.S. public on this issue. Um, It's kind of difficult to say whether they're right. There hasn't been a ton of polling on this issue, but what polling there has been shows that people... Uh, generally do become less supportive of of things like the drone program or U.S. use of lethal force overseas when civilian casualties enter the equation. Uh, So there was one poll at least by Pew that showed that 80% of the public is really concerned about uh, civilian casualties uh, that could result from the drone program. So, you know, that shows that there is at least that kind of concern out there in the abstract. I think where the disconnect is, is when we get to people's actual knowledge of what's happening on the ground in US conflicts and their actual knowledge of of civilian casualties. Um, And and that happens for a few reasons. Uh, One is just generally uh, the public's disconnect from our current conflicts, Uh, you know, unlike Vietnam there is no draft. Uh, portion of the population that's either in the military or directly related to someone who's in the military is, is getting smaller and smaller um, so that's definitely a factor you know that we can't ignore but I want to talk about two other factors that are also really important one, Uh, is the increasing government secrecy around U.S. wars and around U.S. conflicts in general. And that's always been bad. Government secrecy has always been a problem. Uh, And it was bad under Obama, but it's definitely gotten a lot worse under the Trump administration. Um, And what we're seeing is really uh, kind of an attitude of secrecy for secrecy's sake. Um, so secrecy just because, uh, just because the administration doesn't feel that they owe information to the public about what the military is doing overseas. So some of the things you've seen is uh, repeal of, of an executive order that required uh, public uh, reporting on the U.S. drone program, including civilian casualties. You've seen that the Pentagon is not holding televised press briefings. Uh, there's been limited testimony from Pentagon folks uh, in Congress Um, And and this is a problem that uh, that involves former Defense Secretary Mattis as well. Uh, Mattis and Trump may be very different in a lot of ways, but they both have pretty much the same penchant for secrecy. Uh, So that was a a really strong, uh, there's been a really strong drawback and a really strong um, backslide on transparency issues. The Pentagon also stopped, uh, abruptly stopped releasing information on uh, U.S. airstrikes in Iraq and Syria, which also makes it harder um, for other organizations Verify civilian casualties uh, and things like that. Um, they also another another uh, drawback was. Uh, they stopped collecting information on land control in Afghanistan so uh, which uh, which land and territory in Afghanistan is controlled by the Afghan government versus the Taliban which means of course that that information is also not getting to the public and uh, Special Inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction John Sopko uh, said this about that he said the Afghan people know which districts are controlled by the Taliban the Taliban obviously know which districts they control our military knows it everybody in Afghanistan knows it the only people who don't know what's going on are the people who are paying for all of this, and that's the American taxpayer. Uh, So so what you're left with at the end of all of this is is an American public that's completely divorced from any kind of understanding uh, or buy-in to what the military is doing overseas. Uh, And the third factor is really the lack of sufficient media coverage, which is also presenting that information from getting to the public. And some of the reasons for that are outside of of the control of journalists and and of a lot of media organizations. Uh, You have uh, fewer uh, overseas bureaus. Um, It's much more difficult for reporters to be on the ground overseas. Uh, The military and these current conflicts are increasingly reliant on special forces, so it's much harder uh, for journalists to report from the front lines, to embed with units um, to get that information out. And then, of course, there's just the general uh, war fatigue that happens after 18 years and the lack of public interest uh, that that certainly contributes to that lack of coverage. But there are some things that the media can do, and there are some areas where where this does lie within their control. Uh, There was a recent report from Air Wars, which you heard uh, Daphne mention as well, about the uh, lack of media coverage and the fact that Uh, The Pentagon Press Corps often does not see it as their responsibility to be questioning uh, DOD on civilian casualties. They see that as the responsibility of field reporters. And uh, that contributes uh, somewhat to to the lack of coverage. Uh, Additionally, you are seeing coverage of U.S. conflicts... Uh, and and even some coverage of civilian casualties, but typically only when those civilian casualties are the result of the other side of that conflict. So for example, in Syria, you'll see coverage of civilian casualties from Russian and Syrian airstrikes, but not so much uh, from airstrikes from the US or the US-led coalition. Uh, You'll also remember the media frenzy over uh, when the president was considering whether to conduct additional airstrikes on the Assad regime. Very little, if any, of that coverage mentioned the fact that the US had been in an ongoing conflict in Syria for years that resulted in thousands of civilian casualties. So the, these are parts of that coverage that definitely are within the control of the media. And finally, um, the media also has control over what is treated as a crisis uh, in in their coverage, right? So if if a, a U.S. airstrike that hit a hospital and potentially uh, uh, caused the death of civilians was Treated and covered in the same way that a mass shooting or some other kind of crisis was covered, then then people really would be forced to pay attention. Um, and I just want to end by saying that you know transparency and 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 public access to this kind of information uh, isn't the be all and end all of this problem. Um, Americans have really complicated feelings about civilian casualties uh, resulting from U.S. wars, but you do need to start that conversation by forcing people to at least grapple with. Uh, those issues um, and and any any kind of just war in a democracy is going to need to have the, a thorough public com- conversation, a thorough public understanding, and public buy-in. And we can't have that when the public doesn't appreciate or understand uh, the costs uh, of that conflict. Um, and and we're definitely not quite there yet.
0: Very good. Well said. Um, so so I had a series of questions I was going to ask. I'm gonna the first one I'm going to ask Emily is. Pertaining to congressional oversight, um, how much is there? How much is it? Has it changed? What What would you consider to be sort of a, a sign that things were improving in terms of the, the, the Congress's role uh, to to uh, scrutinize these these conflicts?
4: Yeah, it has started to dep- to improve, and I'll defer to Dan on on some of this because he's been working very closely on on some of those oversight efforts. Um, we have seen things uh, like new reporting requirements on uh, civilian casualties and on the legal and policy frameworks that go into uh, to our conflicts overseas uh, in, in uh, the National Defense Authorization Act over the past several years. Um, with, I think, mixed success. You know, the administration has complied with some uh, and not complied with others. It is encouraging that there is more interest uh, in oversight. There's certainly been... Um, I think significantly more interest in oversight of things uh, like Pentagon spending, um, and that side of things, which is which is also really encouraging. But I still don't think that we have seen, uh, you know, anything near the level we'd like to see on civilian casualties. Um, it, it would, the exception of the reporting requirement, which, with, which again, like the administration, kind of complies with and kind right. of does not.
0: We kick this over to you, Dan. So, so same question. And is there anyone in particular that you can think of in Congress who's really stood out in a good way on on this issue?
3: Yeah. Thanks. And I think uh, you know Emily gave a, a really apt characterization in general of of what's happened. I'll, I'll add a couple of thoughts of my own. Um, so in the last three years, we've really seen an evolution of the relationship between Congress and the Pentagon on civilian casualties in some meaningful ways with some room for improvement. Um, about three years ago, what we mostly had was uh, authorization or appropriation for the use of funding uh, to provide ex-gratia payments or condolence payments to people who had been killed by U.S. By US operations, largely led out of the Appropriations Committee. Um, about three years ago, we started to see some signals from different quarters on the Hill, some relatively unexpected um, that were that were largely placed in two buckets one was on uh, reporting from the Pentagon as Emily mentioned on civilian casualties and the other was really a demand signal that the Pentagon should really centralize and develop policies and practices that would govern the way that the, the military dealt with civilian casualties across the board so we saw two buckets of legislation passed uh, two years ago and then with follow-on legislation last year one was the section 1057 requirement for reporting. But the other one, which we don't talk often enough about, is section 936 uh, of two years ago, which required the Pentagon to actually develop a position um, at the Assistant Secretary of Defense level, I believe, um, to manage uh, and develop uniform policies for the military on civilian casualties with a number of constituent elements that are really important for getting at that problem. What I'll say, where that really helped was, in addition to the reporting requirement and the development of the policy, what you saw was a connection between a bipartisan or nonpartisan demand signal from from strong positions of power on the hill and I think a strong interest from certain quarters within the Pentagon to actually do this and to do it better um, that really married up nicely in terms of actually dedicating the time, effort, resources, and personnel uh, to doing it. I think we did see dramatic improvements in the report uh, from the first year that we saw it. Again, with a lot of room for improvement, namely um, the significant disparity that still exists in the overall estimates, but I think we could say that as for transparency, it was a it was a marked improvement. I'll just conclude by saying one thing, which is, in a way, we can't let the success of this be like our like the, its its own biggest enemy. Right, There's a right. saying for that somewhere about success being <laughs> enemy. But um, <clears throat> in that, we have these great requirements now. What we really need is for the Congress to continue to exercise its role, its oversight role, and to continue to apply. You know, friendly and constructive uh, pressure on the Pentagon to keep up, uh, keep up the good work. Um, you know, absent any new legislation. Okay.
0: Um, one other thing you raised, Emily, which I wanted to come back to, is the media's coverage of this. So I mentioned a few articles that had really stuck with me, and some mm-hmm. of the other, you know, the, the radio programs and podcasts and things like that. Um, is the the lack of coverage? Is it a consequence or a cause of the public's lack of interest, right? This is a tough yeah, question. I understand yeah. that. But I think actually this would go first to you, Daphne, is you, Amnesty International does these very vivid, detailed studies on a case-by-case basis. These are, these are personal interest stories. They, they are newsworthy, right? what has been your reaction or or how how would you describe the media's coverage of of your work and what are some of the examples that maybe stand out in your mind as some sort of best cases of of that? Again, we understand best case and a worst case sort of situation, right? Sometimes the ones that get the most attention are truly the most horrific and the most tragic. But but again, the the point of this this event is to make people aware of the scale of the problem.
1: Right. And in a way, we put out good stories in the sense of, like, we provide all of this great, colorful detail about this child who was, right. whose parents were killed. And you know we have horrible, horrible stories. I think this relates to the issue of Congress and congressional oversight as well. And I just want to step back for a second and say I'm much more skeptical than Dan on this <laughs> issue. While we support the um, provisions in the Defense Authorization Act, that's great. We've seen some small improvements. We've seen the military engage more with us. Um, it is really a minor, it's a minor improvement. And the problem is still huge, which is that the US military isn't actually legitimately investigating who it's killing. So we can report all it wants on who it's determined from the air it thinks was in that building that it destroyed, but that's not actually valid information that that can't be verified. And what happens also is that when Groups like us or journalists bring information to the military, and we say, "Look at this case. Look at this case. We have, you know, this strike at these coordinates It killed these people. This was a child. This was a woman. This was." They'll say, mm, "Yeah, okay. Either we'll get back to you. They might say nothing, or they might say, yes, we have assessed that, that was the, that those were the enemy. You know, and depending on where it is, it might have been IS, it might have been Al Shabaab in Somalia." Um, but they won't tell us why they've assessed that. We have no idea what information they're basing that on. It's usually some sort of secret intelligence they have, which, again, may or may not be reliable. So part of the problem, I think, for journalists as well, and I'm a former journalist, so I completely... I, first of all, yes, it's like there's not a whole lot of appetite for really awful news, and that's, those are always the hardest stories to pitch. On the other hand... The other problem is you can go in. I mean, these are a lot of times these are difficult places to go for a journalist, and it costs a lot of money for news organizations to send journalists there. And most news organizations have dramatically cut back on their foreign coverage just for financial reasons. Um, but even if you do find it, and we have had a few people, for example, in Somalia do some really good reporting on families where children were killed by U.S. strikes or, um, or women were killed by U.S. strikes, people who the government isn't nece- wouldn't necessarily say was al-Shabaab. The, the response is always, the military's response is so insufficient. They provide so little information in response that it makes the, sto- the journalist's story It makes it hard for the journalist to verify. There's so little, I guess what I mean to say is that there's so little information provided from the military that nothing can be verified. And so you just have a journalist claim, and editors are going to be more unlikely to want to run with a story that's just, you know, oh, these people on the ground say this is who were killed, if the military is denying it. And I think it, it puts the secrecy, and this goes back to a lot of what Emily was saying, the secrecy on the government's part, Well, it's understandable that the military has to have some secrets, when you're talking about looking back at conflicts after they've happened, the persistent secrecy is covering up what was the, who was actually killed, what the government did to investigate who was killed, why they've <coughs> determined someone was an enemy as opposed to a civilian, that stuff doesn't need to be secret anymore when the when the conflict is over or when that battle is over and the, the government keeps all of it secret and that makes it both harder for the media to report and harder for congress then to care about it because if their constituents aren't asking for information the one other thing i just want to point about congress is i would love to see more questioning from members of congress of members of the administration and the military on What what are the purposes of these wars? What's the strategy of these wars? Who's being killed, and how do they know? And we have seen uh, a handful of people starting to ask some of those questions, but not nearly enough.
0: So I'm going to come back to that. So this is one of the other questions I wanted to ask, and it links up to something that Dan said. Um, Broadly, to what end, right? So, so, so I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. So, so early, one of my very first days here on the job at Cato, many years ago, 16 years ago, I was invited to a briefing at the Pentagon and they presented the evidence just before the war in Iraq started, presented with the evidence of the, of the, of the measures, the steps that the military went to to minimize collateral damage, civilian casualties and whatnot. Again, not entirely unfamiliar to me. I, I, I was in the military. I wanted to believe it was true. I believed it was true. Uh, and yet we do still have to grapple with the unintended consequences, even if I agree with you, Dan, completely. They do not go, you know, generally speaking, we do not undertake these missions with the intention of killing innocent people. But there is a strategic angle here, not to be too sort of cynical and and cold-hearted realist that I can sometimes be, because let's be honest, yes, there are rules in terms of, uh, norms of conflict and uh, uh, discriminant use of force and proportionality and all of those things. But there have also been times in American history and not just American history where the, the, the killing of civilians was an object, right? Um, um, and, and so might it be true, I, I do want to phrase this as a question, might it be true that the civilian losses inflicted by the US military over the last 18 years uh, have contributed to the fact that since 9-11, fewer Americans have been killed by terrorism of all kinds uh, than die from bee stings, have died from bee stings. You understand why I'm asking this question, right? So, so someone might claim that the, the, the US military's very effective uh, ability to carry out the orders given it by the civilian leadership um, is, it has an instrumental effect. It actually does reduce the dangers to all of us here today. Um, Or is it more likely to paraphrase paraphrase Don Rumsfeld that we are creating more terrorists than we kill? Who wants to take that
1: one? I'll take that (laughs) one. I mean, obviously, these are things that are very difficult to prove in terms of numbers. I think there were a lot of basic safety measures that weren't in place, security measures in this country that weren't in place at the time of 9-11 that had nothing to do with killing terrorists. But as we know, if anyone who takes a plane now, there's a lot more airport security. There's a lot more checking of what's going on um, that prevents terrorism in this country. So... I don't want to jump to the assumption that the fact that the U.S. started with a war in Afghanistan, added another war in Iraq, and has expanded the wars to eight different countries at least is the reason that we haven't had another major terrorist attack. I think that's, that's really a leap of faith in, in, in the U.S. governments, in what they're saying. Um,
0: and right, and yet we're told that all the time. Like, there's just an assumption that right. these two things, one follows from the other.
1: Right, and I, think, yeah. and I think that's a faulty assumption. And I think that in terms of the issue of have we created more terrorists, well, the fact that we're now in eight different countries, at least, I mean, that's only where we're bombing, where we're using lethal force, where we have troops stationed in other countries, um, doesn't suggest that we solve the problem. And now we have not only al-Qaeda, but we have the Islamic State, and we have various offshoots of al-Qaeda, that the US says it's at war against. Um, And none of that has been resolved. And no one in the military even is saying that the problem is over. So it doesn't seem to me that that's been a very successful strategy. And yet, when you look at the fact that we're talking about maybe half a million civilians killed, um, if you include all of the wars that we've had since 9-11, uh, overseas, that's likely to have created a lot more animosity against the United States um, and a lot more people who are in very desperate circumstances and more vulnerable to being recruited by terrorist groups. So, again, we can't make a hunt. we can't prove that that's exactly the case, but in specific situations, you pretty much can prove it. Um, but you'd have to be much more specific about where you are and, and how the various groups have grown in those places. And
0: you mentioned, Dan, that's how you sort of came at this initially, right? From the State
3: Department. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I would, And I worked in the Counterterrorism Bureau, actually, and, and I, I think, I just offer three thoughts on this. One, um, if we look back at the attacks of 9-11, um, and even Al-Qaeda as a, as a terrorist organization, they, like other terrorist organizations, used violence for a very specific purpose to achieve a very discrete political end, and part of that was to invite participation by the United States in conflicts that they that they foresaw. I'm not justifying or rationalizing the attack or saying that was the only reason, but it was, it had a political end in mind. And I think the, the question is sort of, one, in our response, did we extinguish enough that, um, that threat? In other words, did we, were we successful encountering like the actual people who perpetrated that attack based on their assumptions about what it would achieve? Uh, and in so doing, what, what else did we invite as a consequence of that? The second is, I think we have to say terrorism and people killed by terrorism, where, right? So there have been no successful major terrorist attacks on U.S. soil, but I would argue that you have seen a dramatic increase in the number of civilians who have been killed by terrorists mm-hmm. in the places where the U.S. also happens to have a military presence. In fact, the vast preponderance of people killed by terrorists are are people who are also killed uh, in, in military operations. Um, the third is whether or not American counterterrorism strategy really corresponds at all to a specific and articulable threat to the United States of America, and I think that's where a, a much greater degree of scrutiny is uh, is worth applying to what it is exactly counterterrorism <clears throat> tactics are achieving in terms of making the homeland safer. And that's where does it make may, has it created more terrorists? I don't have the answer to that question, but I will say. Um, I'm not sure that it's done much to to increase the the safety uh, or security of the homeland uh, and it's a it's a good question worth asking yeah. can I add a couple right, things please, yeah, yeah
4: please. Um, to to kind of underscore what Daphne said I think uh, the the nine eleven commission that that studied Uh, you know, why 9-11 happened and what could have done to to prevent it, um, emphasized uh, to a much greater extent the kind of gaps in homeland security, as she said, as opposed to, uh, you know, anything that that the U.S. military was was doing or could have done overseas to to have prevented that from happening. Um, and when you look at the, the body of academic research on this question, and, and it's, it's fairly small, but uh, the body of, of a particularly quantitative research that does exist on whether, uh, for example, the U.S. Uh, drone program or any of these kinds of limited and, um, uh, uh, you know, disparate um, uses of force in different countries uh, to try and go after Al-Qaeda or Al-Shabaab or, or any of these, these various organizations has actually succeeded in reducing uh, terror activity uh, in those countries, as Dan mentioned. The, it, it's, it's a very inconclusive body overall, but to the extent that there is any statistically significant findings, it's that terror activity has actually increased in those places uh, where we have used lethal force since 9-11. Right,
0: and Cato published a study... To, to that end a couple of years ago, Trevor Thrall and Eric mm-hmm. Gopner, which I would highly recommend to those of you who are listening and here. Uh, all right, so one other question before I throw it open to the audience. Um, the, this, this is a multifaceted problem, right? Um, but, but I want to come back to sort of the, the, the original purpose, which is to educate the public on the, nat- on the scale of this problem, the nature of this problem, the causes of this problem. If you could do one thing, what would, you, what would you do? Where would you put your resources, if you're an organization like the Cato Institute, where would you put your resources to try to, to, try to educate? Where, what else do we need? What, what organizations or institutions do we not have? Would we stand up to, to deal with this problem? How would you go about doing that? I'll start with you,
1: Daphne. Sure. I mean- You know, from my perspective, and at Amnesty, we feel like we never have enough uh, research capacity to go out and really research on the ground what are the civilian consequences of these wars. So that's where I would want to see. Because when we issue a big report, like our reports that we issued on Raqqa and 1,600 civilians killed, or on Somalia, where we showed that 14 civilians were killed from just five airstrikes, where the US had said there had never been any civilian casualties from its airstrikes, that does get a brief burst of media attention. And, and the military responds to that, and they feel like they have to respond to that, and we have meetings with them, and we ha- it starts a dialogue. But we don't have that information on Yemen, for example, Libya, a lot of other places. You know, in, in other battles in Syria, we don't have. We don't have it in, in parts of Afghanistan. We don't have the research capacity to do that. And that's what I think is needed. I mean, I, I think it's ultimately the US military's responsibility to gather that information, but they don't see it as their responsibility to get that information on the ground. Maybe they don't have the capacity to do it. We can, you know, discuss the reasons. Again, I, not to impute any bad intentions to the military, but I think what we need is more research on the ground, interviews with people, video, what's going on? What do these places look like after the US has been bombing them? or using massive artillery to fight an enemy, what's left? So that's where I would like to see more more research and uh, resources put. Okay, yeah.
3: Um, I'll sort of connect maybe a thought uh, to Daphne's and offer two quick uh, thoughts on what I would want. One, um, I think this is gonna sound a little meta or, or philosophical, but we do need to restore the burden for dealing with the truth of what happens as a result of conflict to the people who are actually incurring the damage. Right now, we have journalists who write amazing stories. Osmat Khan's piece in the New York Times Magazine of last year, um, you know, Missy Ryan, others who are who are calling attention to it. And the Pentagon responds to that when they see um, their name or U.S. military operations depicted in the press. They actually are very open to discussing what was depicted because they want to get that
1: right. that
3: story right. And as a result, I think it's almost the response has been oriented to responding to the press, responding to Congress, and we're kind of missing that innate desire to actually reckon with casualties. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is just acknowledging that they may not ever be able to get the exact figures or the precise numbers down, but they should be more modest and humble about what they they are saying they know. Saying 157 people in Raqqa is just absolutely, patently absurd if you look at the pictures of that city. Um, So there are a lot of recommendations that flow from that. But the other one, Civic doesn't take a position on whether or not the United States uh, should go to war or not, but I'll take a position because
1: I actually think
3: (laughs) if the American public and we want to see a reduction in civilian casualties, we need to apply a lot more scrutiny under the circumstances that the United States goes to war, full stop.
0: I can endorse that.
3: also speaking, just personally,
0: uh, although I think my colleagues would agree. Um, uh, Emily, go ahead.
4: Yeah, I mean, one one is is not as much of a of a public education thing as it is just providing uh, more of an accountability thing. I guess it's 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 super crucial that we. Uh, are able to provide the people who are the most impacted by U.S. wars, who are the people who are living under U.S. airstrikes and use of force, the ability to to seek some sort of accountability from the government and the ability to have their their voices heard uh, by the Pentagon, by the administration. Um, Right now, there is no real clear avenue for people to to report civilian casualties or report harm. Um, So I really think that is the most important thing. But when it comes to public education, absolutely agree that more Funding for, for both research organizations um, as well as for pieces like Asma uh, and, right. and Anand's piece and, and making sure that there is support um, and, and infrastructure for, for journalists who want to do that kind of reporting. Right. Uh,
0: before I throw up to the audience, again, preparing for this event, just by happenstance, over the weekend, Secretary Pompeo uh, declared that uh, 1,000 Taliban had been killed in the previous 10 days. Um, and my reaction was, oh, okay how many civilians were killed I think that's the kind of question which is not it is, you know it is certainly not inappropriate to wonder that that, that question uh, and I think the argument that zero is absurd but we should try to figure out what the what, what you know so it's not zero uh, so what is the number can we get you know some sort uh, scrutiny around that all right so um, Uh, The typical rules here apply for those of you who have been to the Cato Institute or, frankly, any public uh, forum here in Washington, D.C. Please wait for the microphone. That's for the benefit not merely of those who are here in the room with you, but those watching online or who will be uh, listening uh, later. Um, Please identify yourself and your affiliation uh, if you have one. Um, And uh, uh, this is my own special rule. Uh, Please please uh, adhere to the Jeopardy rule, which is uh, to phrase your question in the form of a question. Uh, uh, I would most appreciate that. Um, uh, There are several microphones, so if you would like to be recognized, please. uh, Right here in the middle. Go ahead, sir.
5: Hi, Robert Charretta with uh, International Investor. I'd like to just focus on the blowback question a little bit. There's a lot of these um, cultures have extended families. And I wonder if we need to bring social scientists, psychologists, and others in to try to determine what the likelihood is that if there is not just a death, but a serious injury in the family, what's the likelihood that one of the cousins or brothers will decide to take up arms against the United States? And mental health also. Uh, There are a lot of children you mentioned earlier, and I'm sure this one study you're, you're alluding to did, Um, children under bombing campaigns, et cetera, severely impacted by this. What's the likelihood that that also will lead to severe mental illness going forward? I'd like to hear more about that. And and frankly, I I would like to hear, I think the only thing that's gonna get the, the public and the media's attention again is to broaden these numbers including serious injuries, including mental health. Then we're talking about tens of millions of people impacted by this. I think so, that's,
0: and it, I should also say, because there are three of us, up, four of us up here on the stage, uh, if you do have a question that's directed to a particular person, I think this would probably be most appropriate for for Daphne. But uh, let me add, we also, again, not not just to publicize, uh, Cato published a paper on this very topic on trauma, right? sort of the collective trauma in Afghanistan by Eric Opner. so I highly recommend that. Go ahead, uh, Daphne, I think that's that probably is most of our review. Yeah, too.
1: I mean, I think it's a it's a great question and a great point, and you're absolutely right. There are millions of people affected, you know, not only both physically by the infrastructure destruction and mental health-wise, and in terms of is someone more likely to become uh, connected to a, an armed group and want to fight the United States. Those are really important questions to ask. are. It's not what Amnesty does because it's not sort of concrete enough in terms of what we report on. But I think they're really important questions to consider. There, of course, would be some limitations on you wouldn't want to make predictions about whether a particular person is likely to join an armed group and encourage surveillance of them or something like that, you know. But I think the more general question and studies could be done and could provide general conclusions that, yes, if someone has been the victim in this sort of way or has, suffered these sort of consequences this is what happens this is what they're likely to do based on large-scale studies and we have many 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 people who have been affected in exactly that way it's a great point
3: yeah i just qu- quickly add um, there have been studies done one uh, was uh, in addition to the cato study i believe the social scientist uh, shapiro and i can't remember the name of the other one there are two that kind of studied the impact or the effect of civilian casualties on uh, on terrorism but also the extent to which it affected the likelihood that those communities or families uh, would do things that would, you know, inhibit or even um, just you know, tacitly not support what the U.S. military was trying to accomplish. So those are good studies to look at. But I offer a caution, which is in line with what Daphne said, that the, like the the, the, basically the instrumentalization of civilian casualties as like a security issue is kind of an ephemeral argument that we need to be wary of because. If we, as you said, sort of get a general sense of who might be more likely to join, not only is it, you know, sort of questionably ethically in terms of like <laughs> imposing more surveillance, um, but at the end of the day, those other families and individuals matter just as much as those who, you know, may or may not likely or have the profile of of joining a, an armed group as a result. So just to keep in mind that there are limitations to that. The other limitation, of course, is that we care about blowback until <laughs> we don't care about blowback. And as we're starting to talk about large-scale combat operations, uh, you're hearing less about right. uh, yeah. you know a concern for blowback, so.
0: Okay. Um, uh, right here.
5: Oh, hi, I'm Phil Harvey in the DKT Liberty Project.
2: Um, is
5: combating terrorism the sole
3: stated motivation for all of this, if we're bombing people in eight countries, I could only come up with seven, but I'll check with you later, <laughs> um, is the sole reason to uh, prevent terrorist attacks against the United States or our allies? I mean, it seems very hard to believe that killing a thousand Taliban is going to prevent anything
5: from happening. Uh, in in that department. So are we still in the nation building business? And for God's sake, why?
3: (laughs) I think that's for you, Dan. Uh, (laughs) I think this is actually a great question for the United States government. Um, My own thoughts on their position on this is, it's actually a blend of a couple of things. I think there are places where the stated rationale for the use of force remains to counter terrorism. In other places, they've assumed a kind of more localized vernacular that in other words, we are using force in support of local forces to enhance the stability, maybe not state building, but in a place like Somalia, right. yes, countering al-Shabaab, but in service of a political objective that is specific to Somalia. So I think it, it's kind of become a hybrid rationale that's worthy of, of you know, similar degrees of scrutiny.
4: Yeah, and again, you know, it comes back to this idea that that the government really hasn't made its case to the American public, and so we don't know a lot of what the motivation is for, uh, for especially the expansion of, of the 2001 authorization for the use of military force that, that, that uh, was the response to 9-11. Uh, so many of these conflicts, uh, that is the justification, that is the legal justification that's used, and those expansions have just been made without really consulting the public, without getting public buy-in, and so. so. So we don't know uh, a lot of what the rationale is for what the US is trying to do in a lot of these places.
0: Right. So uh, Emily's report, which we have copies of available, uh, talks about the AUMF, the overly broad use of the AUMF. uh, And uh, this won't be the first time you've heard this at the Cato Institute. That's why we need to sunset the 2001 Mm -hmm. AUMF and uh, uh, perhaps in the future replace it with something else. But for now, just sunset it. I also should mention um, from my own work, it is true that uh, the, the discriminate use of force, the application of, of, of force by the U.S. military can and has reduced the threat of terrorism. It has. There are incidents where we can say, where we can identify people that were planning attacks or, or, uh, or whatnot. So I don't think it's appropriate to dismiss out of hand, and I don't think that's what you were doing, Phil. But I do think it's incumbent upon us to scrutinize that, to not simply assume, uh, to link to another thing I wrote, you know, just because you have a big hammer doesn't mean everything's a nail. Just because you hit something really hard doesn't mean you've solved the problem. It doesn't mean you've not maybe made it worse. And I don't think we have enough scrutiny around that, around that issue. It is extraordinarily easy for, the, for US political officials, for elected officials to deploy the US military which is an exceptionally capable and lethal instrument. But that doesn't mean that it's serving the policy end necessarily.
4: And can I just add one more thing to that, actually? A lot of the arguments that you are starting to hear in opposition to uh, withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan is that we need to engage in this kind of nation building and we we can't, you know, leave – uh, you know, abandon Afghan women or whatever kinds of arguments that you're starting to hear. But I think also if you actually ask the Afghan people, that's probably not what they would say. So uh, that's uh, another, another big reason why, why having those voices as part of the conversation is also important and not just trusting that, you know, we need to stay somewhere forever uh, just so that, um, you know, in this idea that we can prevent any kind of future instability, which we very clearly can't do.
0: All right, there's a hand here in the front and then there's one way in the back. Actually, there's a bunch in the back, so go ahead right there and then, Logan, you know, head up, head back that way and we'll get some hands in the back. Go ahead, sir.
6: Yes, go ahead. Uh, my name is Tamar Chatterjee, Safe Foundation. Uh, to be asking US military to report on civilian casualties is asking an El Paso shooter how many non-enemy civilians did he kill? So, given that, I think we'll always get unreliable information from them, and uh, so, uh, given that, there should be through United Nations some kind of an organizational setup that when there. Americans bombed the Russians will put out, or Chinese will put out. I think there has to be an adversarial relationship between the parties who are doing the assessment and Another part of the question is, why do we need to educate the civilian educate the public in this country about civilian casualties, because the public doesn 't decide when to go to war. public doesn 't decide. <laughs> What military strategy or tactics are being used? Who's being bombed and what is being bombed? So the public cannot do much other than look the other way as the leaders are doing th- their thing.
0: I, I push back a little bit on that second part of the question. Is there is an implicit cost benefit bargain whenever a particular policy is proposed? The, the purpose of this this event and others is to is to highlight the costs. I mean. It's, it, not just the benefits that are claimed, right? We, as Emily just said, we are told that certain actions in Afghanistan deliver certain benefits, but, but it, uh, correctly accounting for the costs of the wars includes the American servicemen and women lives lost, the dollars, and civilian casualties on the ground. So that, I, I, would, I would push back a little bit on the argument that, that uh, making the public aware of all the costs Will not have some effect on whether or not these uh, these wars are started in the first yeah. place.
4: Well, and and you bet that if members of Congress start hearing from their constituents that this is an issue that is of real importance to them, they that will absolutely have an impact. So uh, I definitely don't think that there's nothing the public can do. If 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 folks really start putting that pressure on members of Congress, then you will hear about it. You will start to hear them asking those types of questions that they need to
0: ask. And a follow up, Emily, I think you mentioned. Was it, was it open to the government, or you were pointing to another survey when, when, when the public is presented with, with data on civilian casualties, the, then the polls do show that they actually do care about these Yeah, that was,
4: uh, that was from a, a Pew Research Pew, okay. poll, but, okay. but yeah, and there's a lot more of that polling needs to be done, because right. there's very little of it.
0: Okay. Uh, in the back, so right there on the aisle, and then I see one there in the back.
2: Uh, uh, right
0: there, Lauren, that's fine. Go
2: ahead, sir. Yep, My name is Roger Cochetti, and I thought the most profound comment was made uh, was by the panel chair when he referred to um, the case that is sometimes made in um, supporting uh, civilian casualties. The concept of strategic bombing has been around for 80 years. Right. It was widely practiced in World War II, universally cheered and applauded. Right. In World War II and Korea and uh, pursued vigorously in Vietnam and for those who don't follow the, the, the terminology strategic bombing is a antiseptic way of saying bomb uh, civilian centers and right. the justification is usually threefold. Number one, revenge. Number two, um, break the back of right. the of the uh, other side, break their will, and number three, maybe you'll get a few civilians, you know, in the pro- uh, Maybe you will get a few military targets in the process. Right. So hopefully, there's some military benefit to it. And the entire Cold War was built around strategic bombing. Right. Civilians were le- valid targets. So I don't know how. So so you can't blame so, the American people for saying, oh, so there were 1,500 civilians. Killed in Raqqa, so what? I mean, that's nothing. That's normal in war. So So let
0: me, since I I teed this up.
2: It's the chair who raised it, and I think it's worth discussing how do you separate strategic the the notion of strategic bombing, which is widely supported, from collateral damage, which supposedly is horrific.
0: Right, so one difference that I can point to is that when you are uh, holding at risk civilians, as well as military targets, in a foreign state, in a state actor, then that may have a deterrent effect, right? But when you're dealing with a non-state actor, which terrorists are virtually by definition, and holding at risk the population within which they operate, it does not necessarily have the same deterrent effect, right? Not necessarily. Now, you might have some people that would argue to the contrary. I, I, anyone want to weigh yeah, in on that? I, mean,
3: I, would, I, would, I think it's worth weighing in on and challenging a bit, I think, that this this idea that strategic bombing maintains its currency with like current thinking within the military. And I'm not here to defend the military's position on this. But I do think there has been an evolution since those times about not only the strategic value of targeting civilian centers, but also an evolution in military ethics that says actually we are not going to do that. Like We're not going to uh, violate this principle of double effect, if you're familiar, familiar with the ethical term, uh, in order to achieve our strategic ends. That is highly, of course, inconsistent with a country that maintains the largest arsenal of nuclear weapons, <laughs> but that's a whole different panel discussion <laughs> that we can talk about. I say, that, I say that all with a warning, which is that with the, with the new field manual, Army three, Field Manual 3.0, conversations about near-peer competition and conflict, large-scale combat operations, if you read the comments on articles that are written around civilian casualties, you do start to see a lot more of this. You know, There may come a time when we have to actually like, right. make the population hurt in order to achieve our political ends, but I have not heard anybody who occupies like, a, a serious position of military authority uh, make those claims.
0: Okay. Uh, way in the back, and then I see you, sir, we'll come back to you. Yes, sir, go ahead.
7: Yeah, hi, um, I'm Augustus Salzona. I'm asking my question from the perspective of one who said family and friends uh, who served with honor and distinction in uh, combat in um, World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, none of whom committed war crimes. Can you speak up a little bit, sir? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, okay, from the perspective of somebody who's had uh, family and friends who served honorably in World War II, the Korean right. War. Right, yep,
0: understood.
7: Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, n- none of whom had committed war crimes. Uh, what, um, uh, my question is, this is, uh, what, uh, wh- what do you think would be the best approach for your respective organizations in terms of, uh, making it so, uh, sort of helping to minimize the blowback, which has been occurring since time immemorial of U.S. involvement in military actions overseas, which, uh, uh, fails to mitigate, um, quote unquote, collateral damage. right. So
0: how do we So does, does limiting collateral damage reduce the likelihood of blowback? Uh,
7: yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we have any,
0: do we have any, any evidence to support that, that supposition?
7: Well, I mean, it, 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 it it would be, I, I don't know. I mean,
0: uh, (laughs) no, I'm asking, so I'm I'm rephrasing your question
7: for us. yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, and going forward, I mean, you know, there was a question up there about, you know, what can, what should you all do about, you know, as we move forward um, in time, in, in, in history here, uh, you know, what can, uh, you know, what is that? How can we sort of like mitigate that?
0: Okay, got it. Anyone want to take that?
3: Yeah, I'll offer just a quick thought that just supplements what we talked about earlier, which is not to just think about blowback, but to also think about like, an affirmative statement of legitimacy. And I think that also gets to like, the, the questions about like, information and what value proposition there is in, in having an honest rendering uh, of civilian casualties. And I think we could think about it in terms of preventing blowback and all the empirical claims that are made with respect to that. But I think we can all agree or might all agree that if nothing else, ensuring that our missions are legitimate, our forces are legitimate, and we're in support of, of governments that enjoy the legitimacy with their own populations is generally speaking a good thing.
1: If I could just Please, ask, definitely. I, I just want to add also because there's been some discussion in terms of, for example, strategic bombing, that, that would be a war crime. So the, certainly the thinking has evolved and international law has evolved where it's clear that, if, that the US military and all militaries have to distinguish between civilians and combatants. Um, and I think Amnesty's position would be the fewer civilians you killed, the more careful you are. About getting involved in a conflict and about sticking to those laws of war, which have a very important purpose, the less blowback you're likely to have. I mean, we take, we focus on specifically the laws of war, but they are written to really reduce the impact on civilians and that. I guess we're making a, a little bit of a leap of faith, but I believe that certainly would reduce the blowback.
0: And I think the military military professionals believe that too. Many, oh, many sure. do. You know, absolutely. All right, right here, sir. Yes, sir. And then uh, along the wall, uh, Logan. Okay, yeah. Go ahead, sir.
2: Since World War II, uh, every president administration has been, at the time of election or re-election, they have used some war, one way or the other, to promote their uh, you know, to create some kind of uh, atmosphere in the country to get uh, elected or re-elected. Okay. My question is that, uh, isn't that the same kind of terrorists? You guys call terrorists some, uh, you know, whatever, they kill about uh, uh, 10, 20 or more people, but when the American military goes and kills millions of people, it's called American uh, Interest, Protecting American Yeah, interests. I, I think
0: I understand your question. I, I, I think that the difference, there, there are several. When I study terrorism, which I've done at some, at some length, um, one of the dif- dif- differences is it's the use of violence by a non-state actor to achieve a political purpose. That's how you define terrorism, as distinct from as an instrument of, of state policy um, because a terrorist group doesn't have a state. That's the distinction. That's one of the distinctions. The other thing I want to emphasize, um, no one here today has, has said that uh, the U.S. military has gone out of its way to cause this harm. In fact, we've said the opposite. Um, we are concerned that some of these operations are not sufficiently scrutinized. They do, do not, uh, they're not sufficiently sort of transparent about their activities. But I still believe that it is true that the US military does go to extraordinary lengths to try to minimize civilian casualties for all the reasons that we just said. The concern is that the public is still not aware, believing that the US military goes to extraordinary lengths to limit civilian casualties, that there are none, or very few. That's not true. Uh, and and the, the, what is uh, an impediment to us understanding that is not scrutinizing this more closely. Uh, think- along the wall, sir. Yes, sir, go ahead.
5: Thanks very much. I'm Dan Whitman at American University. Uh, The three organizations represented do amazing work in the field at gathering information, and I I hope you share your data. I'm interested in the sources of your data. You've mentioned very correctly that all sources can be tainted. Uh, The entity doing the work, which might be the military or some other, um, has an interest in, uh, in giving a, a certain impression of what they're doing. Journalists are not there, either because of the poverty of their organizations or the danger in going there. So citizen journalists, um, do they provide anecdotal mm. data that you use? And if so, what is your standard in actually believing them?
0: That's a great question. I think that's mostly for Daphne, but but, but also I'd like to hear from the
2: others as well.
1: Well, I'll just respond briefly to that. So we, we look at those things. I think the organization Air Wars um, look, we'll take that kind of thing more into consideration because they're starting to look at, they look at the large numbers, how many civilians were killed from a certain operation. Because we're not trying to assess the total number, we're trying to identify particular cases. We might look at citizen journalists, at online platforms, things like that, but we'll never assume it's true. We'll always go in and do multiple interviews to see, is this true? Because there are propaganda voices locally as well. Who might have an interest in making it look like the military is killing pe- the U.S. military is killing people that, um, that it's not. So you have to always check that kind of thing very carefully. I just want to also add to the point um, made by the earlier gentleman that I, I think even if the, even though I do believe the U.S. military tries to minimize civilian casualties, it's a very important point that in other countries that are being bombed, they may well view the United States or some of that population which doesn't understand our strategic interests, might view the United States as terrorists and might view them as terrorizing their population. And that's an important thing to think about.
0: Thank you. Uh, Right in the middle, sir, uh, right there. Logan, did you see him right there in the middle of the pack? Uh, Yep.
6: Hi, <clears throat> thank you. Um, John Beckman, I'm a student from American University, and speak up
0: just a little bit there, John.
6: I'm a John Beckman, a student from American University, and you talked about how um, the press has an effect in uh, shaping the public interest in this issue, and I was just curious if social media also had any effect on public interest in this issue, either uh, the public here or even in the countries that uh, civilian casualties do affect.
0: So, th- so we we've we've. Sort of commented on how the traditional news media by reducing um, uh, the foreign bureaus and foreign coverage um, is a problem is and I think this relates a little bit to the, to the previous question is social media helping to fill some of this gap
4: I mean I think certainly yes, uh, we certainly have access to to photos videos um, and and first hand accounts that we wouldn't have ordinarily. I think the issue is that uh, then on, on the flip side of that, the U.S. media doesn't necessarily treat uh, uh, these accounts as credible, um, some of which rightly so, perhaps some of them not. But even, even foreign media in a lot of the impacted countries is often not treated right. necessarily as credible by U.S. media. So, uh, you know, while a lot more of that information certainly is getting through, I think there's a limit to how much it's then going to be picked up and broadcast uh, here in the U.S.
0: Okay. Um, let's get a uh, right over here. Sorry. Um, And then, okay, Lauren, you got that? Yeah, right there.
7: Hi, I'm Brooke from American University. And I was wondering, um, if they aren't already in place, do you feel there exist any possible more positive preemptive measures we could take as opposed to warfare that would still both lower the rates of terrorism while not necessarily harming um, US economic ventures?
0: Right. So, yeah. What other instruments of policy could we use? To, you know, again, we're, we're we're conducting this event in the context of this is you know post nine eleven wars. Uh, what else could we be doing besides the use of force, which obviously carries the risk of civilian casualty? Anyone want to take that one?
1: It seems like a Dan question. It does sort of seem like a Dan. <laughs> I,
0: I, I'll let him think about it. It's it's kind of a me question too. I'll let Dan think about it for a minute. I, I mean, so. Cato Institute, we published a number of studies and books over the years on on counterterrorism since 9-11 and I edited a, a couple of them. Um, I think that, first of all, it requires us to put the nature of the threat in proper perspective. That is, I would start there. There is a reason why I pointed out that um, your likelihood of being killed by a terrorist in the united states i want to and dan is correct that the incidents of terrorism outside of the united states have risen but inside of the united states your likelihood of being killed by a terrorist is lower than almost anything lightning strikes don't run into a deer with your car cuz don't don't drop your 50-inch big screen television on you all of those things are more likely to kill you than terrorism gluten. okay so it gluten thank you yes <laughs> so so we start by putting the threat in proper perspective, because then you get to the question of costs and benefits. What costs and risks are you willing to incur or to impose on others in exchange for what benefit? And I think it was entirely understandable. I want to, be, I want to emphasize this. After 9-11, the trauma that this country felt was so severe, and it was not absurd to think, that those events were not uh, an outlier, not merely a black swan event, but they were a harbinger of a new wave of terrorism. It turns out that was false. It turns out that was not true. Um, That's why I also raise the question is, are the things that we have done since 9-11, do they explain why those incidents are less? And my reading and interpretation of the evidence is no, that in fact, the danger is not that great my colleague John Mueller has written a number of books and articles on this topic. If you actually scrutinize the, the actual known terrorist cases just here in the United States, the likelihood that any one of those incidents would have resulted in anything approaching a 9 11 uh, scale attack
3: is in, you know, vanishingly
0: small. Okay? So it starts by putting the threat in perspective.
3: I, I completely agree. I'll just give you one short anecdote. There will be a lot written about Yemen uh, in, in the days and years ahead and, and kind of our history with policy there. I reflect back to the early days, 2008, 2009, when I was working Yemen counterterrorism policy, and the White House then had kind of a two-tiered strategy. One was, what could we do to enhance the capacity of President Saleh uh, mm-hmm. to counterterrorism in his own territory, to including our own strikes against AQAP, but then also doing a lot to enhance his, his lethality. And then we had this other stream, which was, let's give more stuff to the Yemeni people to show them that the United States like, cares about them, so we enhance development uh, there we never stopped to take a look at the fact that Sala was the problem. The <laughs> fundamental <laughs> legitimacy deficit was Sala. So we were pursuing a two-pronged strategy but that we're working at odds with, with one another. And I think one of the things that, we learned, that I learned from that was we, can, we often think about what can we do to fix the problem, engineer solutions, and we often turn to the things that are most readily apparently available, either massive amounts of arms sales and security assistance, or we look at development aid and we try to blend those two things. Sometimes the best thing we can possibly do is to refrain from enhancing you know, the capacities of illegitimate governments to, who you know, are part of the problem. Well
0: said. Okay, that generated more hands up. All right, sir, you've been very patient there along the aisle, and I saw another hand. Logan right there, that gentleman there in the white shirt right there. Hold your hand up, sir. Go ahead, sir. Yes, sir, go ahead. Okay, I'm gonna lump the questions together now because we're running out of time. Go ahead, very quickly.
1: Okay,
5: Uh, Imada Dean Ahmed with the Minaret of Freedom Institute. Uh, Chris, you gave the State Department's definition of terrorism as the definition of terrorism. I don't think it's universally accepted. I certainly don't accept it. And it brings to mind two questions. First off, how would you square that with the statement that had been made earlier that there's been evolution in thinking about strategic bombing True. to say it's no longer considered acceptable. And the second question is, how can any libertarian claim that an act that is otherwise unjust becomes just because it's committed by a government?
0: <laughs> I don't know that I said that. I was differentiating the, t- the terms.
5: You Fair said enough. it's terrorism when it's done by a non-state actor. Okay. And when it's done by a state actor, it's not terrorism.
0: You're, you're challenging my libertarianism is that, is that <laughs> here, here in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium. I'm, I'm trying to draw you back a, into the Gee, floor. you know. Uh, He's got a card. Yeah, uh,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: I got a card. Uh, uh, I think to the to the first question, uh, who wants to take that one? Because I, I, I stand, I won't say corrected, but... I, I, I take your point, sir. Thank you. Yeah,
4: I mean, I think there is definitely uh, an also widely accepted definition of terrorism that any targeting of civilians for political purposes is terrorism, regardless of whether it's committed by a state or, or a non state actor.
0: Okay. Sir, right
3: there. Hi. <clears throat> My name's Tom. I'm a student at American University. My question is how much does cyber terrorism? Uh, impact your work, if any, at all?
0: Mm, Good question. Who wants to
3: take that one? I can offer just a couple of thoughts for implications that cyber has in our field in general, but I I definitely don't claim to have a monopoly on this. So one, uh, just some thoughts for consideration. One is the extent to which cyber attacks can interrupt um, services and and goods upon which civilians are dependent. So Mm -hmm. um, if nations start to engage in state-on-state cyber warfare, um, you have to think about the knock-on second and third order effects uh, to critical infrastructure. I think that's actually a big mm-hmm. a big concern. The other that I think is that gets less attention is not technically a cyber issue, um, is the extent to which the precision and the deployment of military weaponry depends very heavily on satellite technology for, uh, for the assumptions we make about how much damage it will cause. I think interruptions to those things render mm-hmm. a lot of those mm-hmm. tools a lot more blunt in their application, and so that's something to watch out for. And then I think AI is another panel that I hopefully will be yeah. invited back to, to talk yeah, about. Yeah, that's but. a totally different. Yeah.
4: But I think as you know, as AI and machine learning uh, becomes a, a, a bigger part of uh, of DoD and of uh, the way the military is operating, um, it also increases a lot of vulnerabilities, uh, and that's really a double-edged sword because it has a really profound uh, negative impact on transparency as well. Uh, It means that uh, the military is much less willing to release uh, a lot of information on the way weapon systems uh, are are bought and sold and operated, and that makes it a lot more difficult to to obtain information for the public.
0: Okay. all right. one last question. Uh, Who wants to get the guy way in against the back wall? One last question. Lauren, uh, you can, can thank you very much. This will be our last question. Make it a good one, sir. Don't challenge my libertarianism. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I think he didn't name it James Buchanan.
5: <laughs> uh, Hi, Drew, uh, Drew Rao from NHK News. Um, along with civilian casualties, are there uh, government or private organizations estimating the financial costs of the destruction of the war on terror, whether it be over the last 17 years in uh, specific countries, like one of the eight you were talking about, or even in events, kind of like how um, Amnesty International had investigated that um, bombing in Raqqa. Uh, and if so, what do these estimates look like?
0: So, uh, this is the question about the dollar cost in addition to the civilian casualty cost?
5: Yeah, ex- exactly. So, there are civilian casualty estimates. What do we see in terms of what the destruction to infrastructure and things like that cost?
0: Right. I think there's a tendency, I, I'll, I'm curious to hear from the rest of them. There is a tendency, again, this the, the, the U.S. foreign policy and U.S. national security policy, is a tendency to focus on the cost to the U.S. taxpayer, but, but to accurately assess. The true cost of these wars, you do have to account for the, the damage to infrastructure in the places. Again, we've focused a bit in this in this discussion on how damage to infrastructure results in civilian deaths. And, and, and but but there's also the question of how how you go about rebuilding that infrastructure and, and whether or not you go about rebuilding that infrastructure after
3: right. I mean, I think the only resource I would call to your attention, I think my co-panels might agree, is the Cost of War Project, that of right. Brown University, yeah, exactly. which is a good be. resource. But I don't know too mean. many others that are doing it. I think that's right. I think they're the best.
0: All right. I want to thank, first of all, the panelists uh, for joining us today. Thank you all for being here. Uh, we uh, then will have uh, lunch upstairs in the George M. Yeager Conference Center, uh, the um, – uh, our Conference staff will show you the way, it's on the second floor up the spiral staircase and there are restrooms up there on the second floor. On your way, look for the yellow uh, wall along the way. Thank you all very much for joining us today.